Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we're going we're gonna to look at the last passage in this letter this morning. It's freezing in here, by the way, isn't it? You guys are all thinking that, right? You guys are all got your heavy coats on and your scarves. Uh, we're going we're gonna to persevere for the sake of the gospel this morning. Uh, it's sad, a little bit sad to me, that we're coming to the end of this letter. It's been such an encouragement to my soul. I hope that it has been to yours to understand more deeply why Jesus had to do what he had to do, how Jesus fits in light of what God had been doing throughout the history of his people, how Jesus offers something that no other Savior can. That's been the burden of this letter, to show that truth about Jesus. And it's been tremendously encouraging to me. I I hope it has been to you. I'm really looking forward to next Sunday, where we get to think together and reflect together as a congregation on how we have encountered God's Word. We trust that God's Word works itself out in us and in the shape of our life together through hearing his word preached and then through letting it bounce around among us in conversations and in small groups and in, and in our counseling of each other. And next Sunday will be a great chance to reaffirm that commitment to his word, to do that together. Looking forward to that. I hope you guys will, will be here and be part of it. This last passage in the letter is a bene- what, what's typically called a benediction. It's a blessing or or an appeal to God to do something for the people to whom the letter had been written. It's really common all through uh, letters in the New Testament, and there's even benedictions scattered around the Old Testament as well. Typically what a benediction does is call for action and for God's blessing. What this benediction does, though it involves some of that, is remind us of where this letter has been. It's actually a great way for us to look back at where we've already been in our study because, because every word in this last section is, is weighted down with, with allusions to what's already been said. So as we're called to, to think ahead to what we should do with this letter, we're also called to remember what's in it and not to let that get out of our sight. So that's what I want us to do this morning. I want to just pick this thing apart to try to point you to through the details of this beautiful benediction to the major themes of the letter we've already looked at as a way of calling you to remember this letter ongoing. You know, when we leave from today and next week and maybe don't come back to Hebrews for a long time, I want the message of it to have gotten into your DNA, the DNA of your spiritual life, and to start working itself out in how you worship and how you, how you serve God and his kingdom. That's our goal for this morning. So if you found Hebrews chapter 13, I would ask that you stand with me now in honor of God's word as we read from it. I'm going to read actually uh, beginning in verse 20 all the way through the end of the letter, verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. 
I want to divide this benediction into two different pieces. I think it's a call to remember what this letter has already told us about what God has done once and for all, period, in Jesus. And it's a call to remember what this letter and the covenant it writes about promises that God will do because of what he's done in Jesus, what he will do in us and for us through Jesus. Those are the two steps I want to take this morning as we look back at where we've been. So I want to start with what, remembering what God has done. That's, that's in verse 20 of Hebrews 13. Before, before the author gets to the gist of this benediction, before he, before he tells us what he's praying that God will do for his friends, he tells us what, he reminds us of what God has already done. He reminds us of what the whole letter's been about. And, and this verse is, is a concise and beautiful description of God's action for us in Jesus. It's so beautiful that it's almost a shame to pick it apart, really. I think it's meant to almost stand as a unity where we just read it and then pray and, and go on our way. Maybe some of you guys are wishing that that's exactly what I would do right now. <laughs> At the risk of, of, of breaking down something that's meant to stay as it is, I think we actually will be able to savor it as we read it together more if we, if we pick it apart a little bit. Because I want you to see, I want the full weight of what, these, of what every word is meant to point you to, to land on you this morning. And in this first verse that points us back to what God has already done, what I want to zero in on are two things implied about God and what he does for us in Jesus in the way God is described here. He's described first as a God of peace, and then we're told that, that this God of peace is the one who brought Jesus back from the dead. Those are two things that are true about God that point us back to a lot of what the letter has been about. And what underlies those two things is that last phrase in verse 20. That God has done these things by the blood of the eternal covenant. So what I want to do here, remembering what God has done, is break apart God of peace and the God who gives life, who brought Jesus back from the dead, and look at both of those two things and make sure it's clear how both of those are connected to the covenant and to Jesus' blood, which has been such an important theme throughout the whole letter. So let's, let's break those down one at a time, beginning with the God of peace. The God of peace. One of, one of Hebrews' most consistent subjects from the beginning has been the priesthood of Jesus. What we said about that office, which we, admittedly is, is so distant from us, it, we just don't think about priests and why we would need them. It's just not, it, it's not part of our vocabulary as Christians typically, especially in the Protestant tradition where we usually don't even call pastors priests. What, we've, what we said in trying to reclaim what that office meant at, this, at the time this letter was written is that a priest is something that you need because a relationship has broken down. You need a priest because you need a mediator to go between two parties who are at odds with each other. What we said is that in the, in the perspective of the Bible, everything that's wrong with this world, everything that's wrong in you, everything that's wrong outside of you, all stems from one common source. And it's that the relationship you were made for has been broken by your sin. And everything else that's wrong in the world is a trickle-down effect from that breach. What we said also is that the breach was on us. We chose to turn away from the relationship that means life to us. The priest comes into the gap as a peacemaker, as one who brings two parties together. 
And what this letter has said about Jesus is that he does this fully and completely in a way that no other priest possibly could. Jesus, that God sent us this priest, is the primary evidence that he is a God of peace. You know, there's a lot of ways that the Bible, a lot of images that the Bible gives us, images that are familiar in our experience to help us understand why sin matters so much, what it's done. But the one that I think is called for here, the one that makes the priest necessary, and the one that comes up all through Paul's letters even, is the image of rebellion, of treason, of a turning against a rightful king. Paul, Paul uses language like this all the time. He talks about, he describes our condition and, and our sin and apart from Jesus as one of hostility, like we're hostile in mind. He says that we're alienated. He says that, um, that we are enemies in Romans 5. And in, in those places in Paul's letters, we're told that God has made peace, that he's brought about reconciliation between himself and those who were his enemies through the cross of Jesus. And I think that is what Hebrews is getting at here. That's what he means when he says God of peace. That through the blood of the eternal covenant, because Jesus as priest not only brings us together, but stands in our place and takes what we deserve. By the blood of this eternal covenant, God has made peace. And the covenant that's possible because of Jesus' blood is like a, is like a huge sweeping peace treaty that writes the terms out for us, that sets the terms of how we'll relate to him and, the, and, and makes that peace permanent and secure. I think one of the, one of the great tragedies of our time is that, is that we hear things like the blood of the covenant and that it took this to make peace with God and we're put off by that. One of our instinctive reactions is to see this as kind of vindictive and primitive. See God as a sort of bloodthirsty pagan deity almost. That he would require blood to make peace? Why didn't he just get over it? Why didn't he just forgive? I think when we, when we have that reaction to the idea that it, that it took blood of the covenant to make peace with us, I think we're just showing how deeply embedded we are in our own time and how little we recognize how unique our time is. That, that, that every culture throughout every part of the world, throughout all of human history, up until this modern era, would have just assumed that treason means death. That to turn your back on, to undermine, to work against and even fight against a rightful king is to bring death on yourself. To not demand death for treason, to look the other way, would have suggested, and every, and every culture would have gotten this, would have suggested that the laws and the authorities that you've abandoned or turned your back on don't matter. It would have said that they, they weren't worth enforcing. Really, the only, the only way we can resent this morning, the fact that death was required for God to make peace with us, is to minimize how important sin is. To just fail to recognize what it is to be guilty of treason against the God who made us and is the only reason we exist. I think the tragedy, though, of our reaction to this, of our aversion to blood as a necessary payment for peace to be possible, the tragedy goes even deeper. What this this natural instinctive aversion does to us is it keeps us from seeing the beauty that's in the promise that God has made peace by giving his own blood it was our blood that was demanded. Our aversion to blood as a price for peace keeps us from seeing the beauty of the promise that God has supplied the blood that his holy justice demanded 
for our sin. And that, it, that has been the theme of Hebrews from the beginning, especially around chapters 8 and 9 and 10, where, where every verse, it seems like, makes some sort of reference to Jesus' blood and how it's more sufficient than anything else. I, I get that those are primitive images, that we don't like to think about blood in that way. But if we, if we don't, we minimize the importance of sin and we fail to really connect with how beautiful is the promise that God has supplied what we were required to give, that he has taken on the penalty that was meant for us, that Jesus' blood is so valuable, so much greater than that of bulls or goats, that it wipes all of us clean who trust in him, clean of all stain of rebellion, it, it's, a, it's a blood that makes peace possible and permanent. And it comes with the promise that in Jesus, God will remember our sins no more. That's the kind of peace that he makes with us. What kind of peace is this? How far from anything in our own experience? I've been thinking about that a lot this week, getting ready for today, about, about how thinking back to earlier conflicts that we're familiar with in our history, and how different the terms of peace have been in human conflicts compared to what this, this peace that God has made in Jesus yields. This last week I saw uh, the, the Lincoln movie that's in the theaters right now. Uh, it was really surprisingly good. It focused in a lot on the, on the end of Lincoln's life and his, his activism to get rid of slavery through a constitutional amendment. But where it ends is with the words of, of Lincoln's second inaugural address, the last major speech that he gives. And I was struck again by how remarkable it is that this man who had had the last several years of his life consumed by a war, who understood that those who, had, who were fighting this war were rebels against him and against his, the government that he represented, expressed things like malice towards none, charity towards all. This... this magnanimous almost posture towards those who had rebelled against him it was kind of best case scenario for the south it's the best they could have hoped for right but even then even under those best of of possible terms having having leadership that wanted to bring peace in a way that would that would not root out the south from from the nation in general even even with that kind of leadership in place the peace that was established after the civil war it was devastating to the south they were, they were completely wiped out economically. Their property was in many cases plundered by those who, by, by, by troops. And they were politically isolated from the, the, the mainstream of American life for decades. Even in some cases almost colonized by politicians from outside who came in and took office. They were, they were held responsible for the nation's greatest ills, rightly or wrongly. From that time, in some, in some ways, even to the present, and carry around a cloud of guilt over the things that led to that war and the aftermath of it that in some ways exists even to today in the Southern conscious. conscious. And that was under the best case scenario. How different is this peace established by God's covenant? In this case, the rebellion, the fault that led to our war with God was all on us. The fault is all ours. But far from plundering us, God gives us the spoils. Far from reminding us of our guilt, God promises to remember our sins no more. 
This is what it means that God is a God of peace by the blood of the eternal covenant. God is also the God of life. Verse 20 says that he is the one who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And that he did this, he led him out of death by the blood of the eternal covenant. What does that mean? I think this is another reference to one of the major themes in this letter. We have to go back near the beginning of the letter to pick this up, though. Maybe you remember back in chapter 2, the whole chapter was dominated by what Jesus did to defeat death. The chapter quoted extensively from the Old Testament, from the fact that death calls into question anything that we humans might try to accomplish with our lives, that it calls into question our status as those who bear God's image, that it holds us in a kind of slavery. Here's, here are some of the things that chapter 2 said. Chapter 2 reminded us and promised that Jesus had been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It promised that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. A little later on, it says more about what this means. Verses 14 and 15 in chapter 2 say, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what Jesus did by his death and resurrection. That's what the author is pointing us to by reminding us that God is the one who led him out of death. I want to park here for just a minute to make sure that you know the significance of what Jesus has done, what God has accomplished through his death and then through his resurrection. I think to, to really savor it, we have to remember why we're described as being in kind of a slavery to death. And then we have to remember why Jesus' death and resurrection solves that problem. We want to, we want to make sure we've got a clear sense of the problem, of why death is a kind of slavery. And then remember how it is that Jesus' death and his resurrection deliver us from that slavery, set us free from it. I think the fear of death enslaves us because it calls into question the meaning and the significance of everything we might try to do with our lives. The fact that our our lives end in the same place as a common house roach calls into question anything that we might try to do that's distinctive, that's human, that's meaningful and lasting. I've been reading uh, recently this this, uh, Leo Tolstoy's classic novel, uh, Anna Karenina, trying to get it read ahead of the movie, which I failed to do. Uh, but it, it's been awesome, and, and there's so many wonderful insights into human nature and the human condition into what it's like to, to live as one who thinks carefully about the world. Uh, this, this week I came across a passage where one of the central characters was kind of ambitiously, maybe even arrogantly, planning out the way he was going to revolutionize all of the farming relationships between landowners and peasants throughout all of Russia. He had come up with it. He was testing it out on his own farm, and he was going to publish it in a book, and he was going to change the world. So his life is full of meaning and, pur- and purpose and drive. And then his, his older brother comes for a visit, and his older brother is near death. He's washed up. All the things he had tried to do in his life have been failures. He's angry. He's bitter. He calls, he's poking holes in all of Levin, the the, the main character's schemes and plans. But what strikes Levin, the central character, is that he is going to end up where his brother is. 
that his brother's got maybe a couple more months left to live. And he begins to think about the things he's planned to do in light of the fact that he won't be around to enjoy them under the best of circumstances. And he starts to despair. Now, most people believe that this character is, is a sort of autobiographical character for Tolstoy. And if that's true... I think Tolstoy himself gives us some insight into what he's getting at there in that story. Tolstoy wrote a confession, a book called The Confession, where he was describing how he came to appreciate and and own faith in Jesus. And one of the central things in his confession is how his own fear of death drove him to what Jesus offers. And here's what he says. I think it explains the story I told. He describes death as a great dragon that consumes all meaning in life. He describes the pleasures of work and family and the things that we enjoy about life as a kind of honey that intoxicates us, that, that, that sweetens and distracts us from the, the real things, the real death that we face. But when we acknowledge the dragon that is death, even the things we enjoy lose their sweetness. Here's what he writes. This is a quote. Illness and death would come. Indeed, they had come, if not today, then tomorrow, to those whom I loved, to myself, and nothing would remain but stench and worms. All my acts, whatever I did, would sooner or later be forgotten, and I myself am nowhere. Why then busy oneself with anything? How could men see this and live? It is possible to live only as long as life intoxicates us, as soon as we're sober again. We see that it's all a delusion and a stupid one. So much for life as it is, right? Apart from any kind of intervention from God, this this sums it up. If death is the end. Even the best of life, even the things that we do enjoy, isn't it something like taking out a Bentley for a test drive when you know you're going to drive home in your 1990s Chevy Cavalier? Isn't it like touring an open house in Belmine when you know you're going to be headed back to your studio apartment after? You're just getting a taste of something that's not in your future? Death calls into into question the significance of anything we do, of who we are. And if we end up in the same place as anything else, what's the point of being human? And it's coming for all of us. That's the reality. That's why death is pictured here as a kind of slavery. But God led Jesus up from the grave. God brought him back from the dead. And in that central event where history itself turns, we have a promise that God has solved the problem of death once and for all. What we're told is that Jesus tasted death for us. That, that by his death, he, he absorbed everything that we were meant to pay. I think the reason that we're told that this resurrection, that God leading him up from the grave is possible because of the blood of the covenant, is that the blood of the covenant is, is really only as powerful as the thing it's able to accomplish, Right? And if death is the main problem, then we'll only know that that blood is powerful if death itself has been wiped clean. If death no longer holds any sway over us, if it's no longer waiting for us, if it no longer has any power, then the blood of the covenant has worked. If the blood of the covenant hasn't worked, then death is still hanging over our heads like a cloud. 
What he's saying here is that Jesus has been led out of the grave. He was able to conquer and transcend death because the blood of the covenant was so perfect, was so all-satisfying, so perfectly wiped clean every stain and fulfilled every debt that death no longer has any power. Jesus gave a life that he did not owe, a life so perfect and valuable that it can wipe clean the slate of all who trust in him. And with that clean slate comes a future that isn't defined by death. With that clean slate, it's possible for God to make with us an eternal covenant that will never end. That is the beautiful promise of this letter. That is what God has done. He has made peace with us. And he has made it possible for us to live forever because of the blood of Jesus' covenant. It's that God, the God of peace who brought again Jesus from the dead, that our author turns to in verse 21 to ask him for things, right? And turning in verse 21 also turns us to another major strand in the letter. The letter looks ahead to all the things that God is going to do for us based on this covenant he's made with us, the covenant that was possible because of Jesus' blood that is promised to us through Jesus' resurrection. Now we'll do this in us. Verse 21. May this God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. One of my favorite sections in the letter, my favorite sequences of sermons in our series, was in chapter 8 where the author's talking about the new covenant. He talks about covenant all through this letter, but that's where he really drills down on the, what defines this new way of relating to God that this covenant makes possible. And what the, what the essence of that covenant, what separates it from everything else that came before in Israel's history, is that in this covenant, God promises he's going to do in us and for us what the covenant requires. He is going to give to us what the covenant requires of us. The problem under the old, the old way of doing things where God promised Israel, do these things and I will give you this, was never the promises. They were fine and God was good for them. The, prom, the problem under that old covenant is the list of things Israel had to do to get into those promises because they were never able to hold up their end. Again and again, their history shows us a failure that we would have shared in if we'd been living in that time. We know that from our own experience. We would have done no better. If the, if the covenant and its promises hinge on our ability to, to meet some condition, then we have no, we're just not going to get what the covenant promises. But God has taken our weakness out of the equation. That's the promise of the new covenant. The promise is rephrased for us here in verse 21, that he'll equip us with everything that we need. He's going to change who we are. He's going to give us the equipment that we need to do his will. The promise is that he will work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He will change us so that we are able to live the lives of worship he made us to live. See that? The emphasis of this verse. The emphasis of this verse is not on us doing what's pleasing in his sight. I think it's clear enough what he has in mind there. He's been talking about it earlier in the letter. It's living lives that, that are worshipful because they show that Jesus is everything we need. They're, they're secure. They don't oppress others because they, they're set free to serve others rather than exploit others because they... They are secure in the promises that God makes to us. That's what he had. That's the life that pleases him. It's a life that shows how glorious he is, how all-satisfying he is. But that's not the focus here. 
The focus here is not on what it is to live a life that's pleasing to him, but in how it's possible. The focus here is on the fact that God will do that to us. And he's drawing straight from chapter 8. That's what he's praying for his friends here. That God will make the promises of the new covenant true and living in them. That God will transform them and give them new power. Now, I don't know if you're tripping up on this, but one of the things that I've tripped up on in, in reading through this is, is how, how could it be pleasing to God that we're just giving him something that he's given to us already? Like what, what we're told here is that he works something out in us that pleases him. But it's all him. So wouldn't, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be necessary for us to have something to offer him for him to be pleased with us? It seems in, intuitively that that's the way it would work. But I think, that the, I think that what helps us understand how God can be pleased by what he does in us, how he can be pleased in us because of what he's given to us and done for us, I think the best analogy that I've come across that helps me understand that is the analogy of a, of a father or a mother, a parent, who are pleased by a gift that their child gives them that they ultimately paid for. So it's not like they're getting ahead by this gift, right? They're no, further off, no, no better off than they were before, but that gift is still pleasing to them. So... Uh, I had a birthday last month, and, and my, my two-year-old son gave me a present of some nice mesh shorts, emblazoned with the Auburn logo. Probably have to wear those inside out for a while. He's just now come to the age where he is connecting with gift-giving, mostly with gift-receiving, but also with gift-giving to an extent. He, he loves the idea that he gave me those shorts. Every time I wear them, he points at them and reminds me in his own broken English that he was the one who gave them to me, that they were for my birthday. Even when I, when I wear another pair of shorts, he asks me why I'm not wearing, in his own way, asks me why I'm not wearing the shorts that he gave me for my birthday. And, and his gift to me was obviously paid for out of money that's mine, right? Walter is not a productive member of our free market economy. But, but his gift to me and his joy in the giving of it is still immensely pleasing to me. Applying this to God, I think, could leave the initial impression that this cuts significance out from what we do for God. The fact that he gives it to us and works it in us, but I don't think that's true at all. I think our reaction to that way, if we feel that way, that for God to, to do it means that he can't be pleased by it, just shows how much we've adopted a performance mentality before him, how much we think we've got to perform our way into his good graces, that only things we do on our own are valuable to him. In my relationship to my son and his gift to me, there is no concern for where the ability to give the gift came from, right? It doesn't matter. I don't think about it. He doesn't think about it. He and in his innocence has nothing to prove. He knows that he's fully dependent on Lindsay and me for everything that he has. In his own way, he, he really does know that. And he isn't bothered by that yet. It isn't important to him that he please me on his own merit, you know, from his own strength or his own resources. It's only important to him that he's pleased me, that I'm pleased by what he offers. And as his father, my pleasure in him and his gift isn't affected at all by the fact that I made it possible for him to give it to me. I'm pleased by his pleasure at giving it to me. 
I think this is applying this to the life of worship that this passage has called us to, that the whole of chapter 13 has called us to, is something like applying Jesus' Jesus' words that to enter the kingdom, you've got to enter it as a child, to the exchange that is the life of the believer. Living a life of worship as a believer, to live that kind of life as a child with faith like a child, is to live for him and to give to God the things that we give to him, knowing that our, the only way it's possible for us to give him anything is that he has first given it to us. Seeing what we give to God in this light sets us free from fear that we haven't measured up, from pride that we have measured up, from, from, from the thought that we might miss out on his approval. It liberates us from thinking we've got to earn his favor and replaces that with the joy of knowing that we please him because he has made us to please him. Knowing that we will never not ultimately and finally please him because of what he is doing in us to change us. And here's the last thing I want to say about this. This is the last word of encouragement I want to leave you with. About the, reminding us, we've got to look at what God will do, at the promise of the covenant that he is going to change us to change our DNA so that what, the way that we live actually does please him. Here's, here's the last word of encouragement I want to leave. Far from, from, from um, emptying out any value that our lives of worship might have, I've said that this, this promise secures that value. It makes it permanent and, and certain. It also comes with the promise that, the, that we will be who God is calling us to be. That there's no possibility that our lives will not take on the shape that's defined for us by Jesus. The promise is that in his, by his covenant, he's going to change our hearts. He's going to take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh that we will all know him and be like him because he is going to do it to us. And that comes with the promise that you are not stuck in your sin. No matter how stuck you may feel, no matter how long you've been beating your head against the wall that is your particular addiction, your particular struggle, your special kind of despair, that wall will not hold. The promise is that it won't hold because God is going to break it down. Because God has taken ownership of who you are and he is going to make you after the image he has set up for you. That you will change What this means is that even the things that seem like distractions from your walk with Christ, even the things that cause you pain and that may even tempt you to think that God has given up on you, even the things chapter 12 talks about, the discipline of the Lord for those that he loves, even those things in your life that are hard and seem like waste, that seem to call into question his power and his promises, even those are being used to change you into the person that God wants you to be, to equip you so that you can do the good work he has set aside for you, to work in you what is pleasing to him. This is what God will make you. I think it would be wrong of me not to close by pulling out the final major strand in this letter. It's not in the benediction, but it runs all through the letter. That strand is a strand of warning. It's a warning to those who, through unbelief, 
fail to enter the rest that God has promised them. This warning came up in chapter 2. It came up in chapter 3. It came up in chapter 6. It's all through chapter 10. This warning is scattered throughout this letter that if we harden our hearts, then we will, like Israel, fail to enter the rest that's set up for us. The point is that it is possible to miss out on the promises that God made to us if we fail to stake ourselves to the promises themselves. The call has been to faith, to putting as a substance in the heart of our lives our conviction that these promises are true and trustworthy. This is not a call to work out change in yourself. God is doing that. The call is to say, I want what God has offered. I am saying no to all that stands against it. And that is my only hope in life and in death. And if you don't claim this by faith, these promises will not hold true for you. That has been the message. If you don't claim them, and if you don't hold on to them, the promises won't hold true for you. So here's the final appeal in our study of Hebrews. Press on. Strengthen weak knees and lift up drooping hands. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together and as even more as we see the day drawing near. The command is to is to be vigilant to enter God's rest, to watch over each other and to exhort each other, to hold on and to help each other hold on. If we do that, we will find these promises true. Father, we we long for the day of rest that's promised us here. We, we long to be on the other side of death, that dragon that threatens us, that we are told Jesus is slain. We want to see that with our own eyes. And we're not there yet. And so we throw ourselves again on you and ask that you would, that you would continue to make us who you want us to be, to work out in us that which is pleasing to you, to latch, lash us onto the promises that you've made like a, like a mast for our ship and to keep us on course. We trust that you have given us to each other for this purpose so we could stir each other up to love and good deeds and keep each other holding on to the promises that are life. So we ask that you would help us as a church to be faithful. We want to be who you've set us aside to be as a community, a community of those who are walking towards the promises. So help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake, in his name. Amen.